All right, well, good morning and welcome again. It's good to see you all today. Uh, we're continuing our series in the book of Genesis uh, for the past three weeks. We've really been kind of looking at specifically Genesis 1 and this creation account. And what we've been doing basically is just kind of unpacking this really cool picture of a God of, of goodness, of grace, of purpose, and how he works in creation to reveal himself to us in that way. And, and I hope those messages have been really meaningful for you. If you haven't got a chance to listen, I, I just recommend uh, all of those to you. But I also understand that for many of you, uh, there are nagging questions that these passages bring up. Uh, when I was a young adult, whenever the topic of Genesis and creation came up, uh, the name that immediately came to mind was Jason King. Now, Jason was a friend of mine in high school, and he was the most openly atheistic person I knew. Uh, he was pretty skeptical about Christians and very critical of the church and the Bible. But despite that, him and I were friends, we got along well, and we had a lot of classes together. And so we had a lot of conversations over the years about uh, our faith, or my faith, and, and what he believed. So I would tell him why I believed what I believed. He would tell me why he believed what he believed. And I can remember vividly sitting in Mr. Ellis's Algebra 2 class talking to Jason about creation, about the biblical account of creation. And we would discuss and argue uh, the merits of you know, evolution versus creation, science versus scripture. And I remember those conversations being really interesting, but also kind of frustrating. Uh, I always found myself wishing you know, I, I knew more, or I understood things better, or wishing you know, I could convince him uh, of my paradigm. And so at the end of the day, I think the way that I thought about Genesis 1 for a long time was colored by that experience. And so in the years that followed, I found myself thinking about creation in terms of this larger cultural debate. I began to read scripture and read Genesis with an eye on kind of understanding those specific issues and, you know, kind of hopefully getting some, you know, good arguments so that I could, you know, win in my conversations with people like Jason. Now, obviously your experience is different, but I do think for many of us, uh, our primary context for Genesis 1 and for creation is these kinds of issues. You know, as much as we appreciate all this beautiful theology, this picture of a God of purpose and blessing and rest, there's a part of us that, that just kind of wonders, like, aren't there bigger questions that we need to address? Aren't there more important things that we need to be talking about? Right? Like, these are questions that are at the forefront of this cultural debate about, about creation, right? Like, how long ago was the earth created? Did creation literally take six days? How should we think about evolution, both microevolution and macroevolution? Or to put it simply, how should we think about the relationship between the Bible's creation account and what we learn from science? And look, these questions, they impact all of us in very real ways. Right? They impact the way we view Scripture, whether or not we view it as something that's trustworthy and relevant to our world. They impact evangelism and the conversations we have with people like Jason King or people who are interested in the church but have questions about these issues. 
They impact our families and the conversations that we have with our kids about what they're learning in school. And so we might agree that these are not the main questions in Genesis 1, but I think we can't help feeling like maybe, just maybe, they're the ones that matter the most. And so this morning what I want to do is just kind of address this elephant in the room. Right? The reality that Genesis 1, for better or for worse, exists within this larger dialogue, what at times can be a debate. And I want to be really clear from the outset, I want to be as clear as I can possibly be, I'm going to say this 10 different times today, what I want to accomplish here. Okay? So my goal is not to definitively answer those questions. Okay? We probably don't have time for that, and I definitely don't have the expertise for the task. And further, I really don't want to get into the weeds of this culture war. I don't want to get into the you know, nitty-gritty of the details and all these debates and all the different sides and all the different arguments that you know, rage on between Christians or between Christians and people in the secular world. But at the same time, I don't want to ignore these questions completely. So here's our goal for today. is Basically, I want us to consider this issue from a biblical perspective. Now, that sounds simple, but, but let me be clear about what that means, right? That doesn't mean that we go to Scripture, we look at a passage, and we try to pull out all the science stuff that we can find. It's not like a scavenger hunt where we try to figure out, you know, where is this, and where is this, and where is this? Instead, what I think is a more valuable use of our time is to consider how do we approach Scripture faithfully when it comes to these kinds of questions. And so first, I want to talk about the intent of this passage. Okay, so what was Moses, the human author, and God, as he divinely inspired him, what were they trying to communicate to the original readers of Scripture? How do we see this intent reflected in the actual text? After we do that, we can then talk a little bit about the scope of this passage. Okay, so given the intent in its original setting, how does this now speak into our scientific context, our world, these questions and conversations that we're having about creation and science? Okay, and so again, in talking about these two things, my hope isn't to answer specific questions necessarily, but to create a framework for us to talk about it, for us to dialogue in a biblical way. Uh, if you want to talk more about the, real, the details, the nitty-gritty, the nuts and bolts, if you have specific questions about the science, uh, our brand new pastor, uh, Pastor Abe, is just, he loves talking about this stuff, so, you know, don't talk to me, I, you know, talk to the real experts. <laughs> okay, so, before we get into scripture, let's clarify the basic issue, okay? Most of you probably have some familiarity with this, but what are the main viewpoints on creation within the Christian world? So in the church today, how do we think about the origins of the universe and the origins of life on our planet? Okay, and at the risk of oversimplifying, let me just give you kind of the three main views uh, that I, I think are the most common. So first we have young earth creationism. So young earth creationists believe that God divinely and miraculously created everything in a uh, distinct creation event. Now, the real important detail for this view is that the events of Genesis 1 are six consecutive 24-hour days. Okay, so God creates the universe kind of at face value of the text, right, in a literal week. Uh, humans appeared in the world when the universe is about six days old. 
Now, this literal week of creation means that the earth must be relatively young. Right? So that's why it's called the young earth creationism. Most proponents of this view suggest an age of around 6,000 years. And really, kind of the foundation of this view is, is that they root their conviction in a commitment to the most literal reading possible of Scripture as they see it. Right? They want to read the Bible you know, kind of as it seems most uh, obvious to them. But they are in disagreement with most of the findings you know, of the modern scientific community about the age of the earth. The second viewpoint is uh, old earth creationism, which uh, this is a, a really broad category. There's a lot of variation within this. But proponents of this view also believe in a distinct personal creative event, but they are more likely to accept kind of a you know, the consensus among science today that the earth is uh, much older, the universe is billions of years old, the earth is uh, millions and millions, or life is millions and millions of years uh, in development. And so old earth creationists don't necessarily dismiss a literal face value reading of scripture, but they are more open to different interpretations of those six days of creation. So here are a couple of the more popular versions of this view. You have the day-age view, which uh, this is, I think, probably the simplest option. Uh, for proponents of this view, each day of creation represents a longer period of time. So the word for day in Hebrew, yom, it can mean day, a 24-hour period. It's also, at times in Scripture and other places, uh, used to describe like a long, indefinite period of time. So people who believe this will suggest that each day of creation represents like a geological age, millions, perhaps billions of years. Uh, another view of the old earth creationists is gap theory. And so people who believe this believe in kind of a first creation event in Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth, and then there's some kind of gap in the narrative. Something happens between verse 1 and verse 2, some kind of catastrophe that leaves the earth kind of in need of a second creative event which begins in Genesis 1-2. So Genesis 1-1 happens billions of years ago. Genesis 1-2 happens in the more recent past. That's gap theory. Uh, a third viewpoint within the Christian community, within this world, is theistic evolution. So these uh, people will also argue for an older earth. But they believe that the earth and the universe developed primarily through this natural process of evolution. God is behind this process. He kind of gives it a push in the right direction. But evolution and kind of natural forces are the primary driving force behind existence and life. And uh, as you can imagine, the, the biggest, the most significant implication for this view is what it means for the creation of man. Right? So they believe that, uh, again, that, that God is behind this. It's theistic. It's God-based evolution. But that the process of evolution... Uh, diversification of species, that that's kind of what led to humanity rather than like a one-time creative event, God, you know, bringing up humanity uh, in a moment. Now again, there are lots of other views. If I didn't mention like your personal favorite view, don't be offended. That doesn't mean it's not good. Uh, I actually haven't mentioned my personal favorite view yet, so you have to stay awake till the end of the message for that, Pastor Eric. Uh, <laughs> But again, what I want to do, I, I don't want to try to convince you that any of these is right or wrong. I don't even really want to convince you that my way is right. But what I want us to do is to think about how to approach these issues. What does it mean to be faithful to Scripture 
in understanding creation. So let's start here with this first question. What is the intent of the Genesis 1 creation account? In other words, what are the main truths that the biblical authors, that scripture, that God is trying to communicate to his people about creation and origins? And to answer that question, we have to come back to this very basic idea. We talk about it all the time, but it's easy to lose sight of that scripture has a very real historical context, right? To put it as simply as possible, the Bible is a really, 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 really old book, okay? And, and it was written, it was inspired by God to be relevant to every era. It has meaning for us, but it was not written to us, right? It, it was written by someone and written specifically for people who lived a long time ago, and so when we read Scripture, when we try to understand Scripture, we have to think about how these ancient readers and how the ancient authors would think about things. How would they understand a concept like creation? Like, how would, what would, they, what would come to mind as they thought about it? How would they talk about it? How would they conceptualize it? Uh, one of my favorite podcasts, The Bible Project, talks about how when we read Scripture, we're sort of like a tourist, Right? We're visiting a new place with different customs, a different language, different ways of using words. And not only that, but also different meanings for certain ideas. Uh, I got a chance to go to Swaziland about 10 years ago. And one of the interesting things that I learned in preparing for that trip and in, in being there was that people there had a very different conception of time. Right now, we go for life, go through life and kind of take for granted, and you're just like, well, time is time, right? Like, we all get what time is, but you go to a different culture, right, and you realize that it's not quite as objective as you think it is. Things like what it means to be on time and what it means to value time are different. So, for example, uh, I'm a very punctual person. I'm kind of obsessive about time with everything except the length of my sermons, which is kind of weird, but hey, I, I really like being on time. And so when our family is getting ready to go somewhere, I'm the guy who's like, hey, we're leaving at 4.57. 4.55 is too early, 5 o'clock is way too late, we're in the car, 4.57, okay? But in Swaziland, time doesn't work this way. Time is much more subjective, and so people are late by our standards all the time. Because if you're talking to someone, if you're having a conversation, or if you're in the middle of an event, you don't stop because it's time to go. It's time to go when you're done doing that thing. So when you go to church in Swaziland, it's a little different. Right? Church isn't just over in an hour, maybe an hour 10. You know, they're not sitting there kind of looking at their watches if it's an hour 20, right? Like it's just over when it's over. So sometimes church is an hour, sometimes it's two hours, sometimes it's half a day. It, it, it's, it's done when it's done. And so when you go there, right, when you, when you go to this different place, you have to learn this is how we live in this world. And it would be really messed up to kind of impose our values on them, to stand up an hour into worship service and be like, hey, we're leaving. It's been an hour. Church is over for us, so we're just going to go. That would be rude. That would be being a bad tourist. And so when we visit the biblical world, we want to be a good tourist, right? We want to... We don't want to bring our words, our customs, our understanding of the world and impose it on the biblical context. 
Okay, so we can't come into Genesis 1 and be like, okay, hey, listen, Scripture, listen, Moses, we know a lot more about the world than, than you did. You know, we understand a lot more things, so you got to speak into our world. you got to speak into our context. You have to understand we have questions. Moses, tell us about all these things that we want to know that relate to modern science. Instead, we step into this world and we understand how they think and how they were conceptualizing creation. And it turns out that this matters so much when it comes to our concept of origins, okay, of what creation entails. It turns out that we think about the idea of creation and we have different expectations for creation stories than people in the biblical world. So we think about creation through a modern lens, and we think about what scholars call material origins. Okay, and this means that creation is about making something exist when it didn't exist. Right? The creation of matter, the creation of some substance. We expect a creation account to tell us this is how the earth and the universe was made. Now, you, you might be thinking to yourself right now, like, well, what other way is there of thinking about creation? That's creation. Of course it is. Of course that's what we would want to know. It makes sense to us that this is what a creation story should explain, but sometimes we take for granted that we think that way because we're a modern person. For an ancient person, the focus is not on material origins, but on functional origins. That means taking something that has no meaning, no order, and giving it meaning or, or, meaning or order, placing it into the context of a functional world. Creation and beginnings are about making something work. And so we see this uh, in ancient documents, ancient stories from both ancient Israel and ancient Babylon and ancient Egypt and all these different cultures, that this is how they thought about creation. This is what they were expecting from a creation story. How was the world brought into order? How did things begin to function properly? And we've used this analogy kind of throughout this series. I think every one of us has talked about this a little bit. But right, it kind of relates to the difference between thinking about the, the origins of your house and the difference between making a house and making a home. Right, so as modern people, we think about creation accounts the way we would think about making a home, right? Like building it from wood and nails and drywall and, and putting it all together. But when the ancients thought about creation, when they thought about origins, they thought about the process of making a home. Right, furnishing, decorating, kind of assigning space and, and putting rooms together, making it into a place where people can live. And so when we actually read through Genesis 1 and we recognize this, we see that there's all these hints, there's all these clues that functional origins is really what the biblical authors were trying to reveal to us. Now, I want to show you just a handful of examples of this in the text. We'll spend about 10 minutes here, kind of really diving into Scripture. Uh, fair warning, this is going to get a little bit nerdy, a little bit more in-depth than we would normally go. But I think it's really cool and really eye-opening the way we see the author, the way we see Moses using specific words and phrases and details to bring out this idea of functional origins. So let's start here. Genesis 1-2. Uh, this uh, verse describes kind of the state of pre-creation existence. And it says, Now the earth was formless and empty. 
Darkness was over the spirit of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, there's several things that we want to note here. So first, uh, you know, Pastor Eric talked about this a couple weeks ago, but this phrase, uh, formless and empty, uh, the earth was formless and empty, is really interesting. Uh, in our English translations, these words, formless and especially empty, seem to be indicating something about material origins, right? Like, this is kind of a space without any materials, without any matter. It's like a big, dark, empty void, right? That's, I, that's at least what comes into my mind. There's just this massive blackness of nothingness. But the original Hebrew words aren't really communicating that at all. The words that are used here are tohu wabohu, which is more literally describing kind of an inhospitable, unlivable wilderness space. I've heard some scholars use the phrase wild and waste, which I think sounds really cool and is memorable, but it's also appropriate in describing this concept of tohu wabohu. It's a place that is chaotic, that is inhospitable. The idea here isn't that nothing exists. It's that there is a world here that requires order, that needs to be made into a place with order. And really, this is what we see in the text, right? Think about chapter 1. This whole process is of God taking this tohu wabohu, this place that is wild and waste, and he makes it day by day into something that is good. The word is tov, good, useful. Then in the next part of the verse, Moses talks about the waters. He says that the darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, another interesting thing is that there are two words for water in this passage. Okay, the first word is translated here as deep, and the Hebrew word is tohom. Now, this is like an abyss, deep waters. These are chaos waters. Right, this is another picture of scary, uncontrollable, uncontrollable disorder, and it is reigned over by the darkness. But then in the next phrase, the word changes. Here we see that where the Spirit of God is hovering, where the presence of God is over the waters, the word here, here isn't to home anymore. It's just the word for water, mayim. And this is the word for water when we talk about rivers and springs, sources of sustenance, the water used to water crops, the water that we drink. These are waters that are full of potential for life. And so once again, we see the presence of God taking something that is full of chaos and turning it into something with this glorious potential for something better. Then as we continue through the creation account, we see this theme continuing to develop. And this is a big part of what God is doing on each day of creation. When you really read it through this functional lens, you realize how much God is doing that's related to order and function. Notice some of the words and ideas that are repeated throughout the narrative. Day one, God separates light from darkness. Day two, God is separating water from water, the clouds from uh, the sea. Day three, God is gathering the sky into one place, and he's creating a distinction between land and sea. Right? This is a picture of God like organizing, taking a world of wildness and chaos and making it into something that works, creating a framework for life to take place. 
And then think about what happens in verse, uh, days 4, 5, and 6. God places things. He fills these organized structures, right? So he puts things where they belong. He puts the sun during the day and the moon at night. He puts animals, each according to the kind where they go, right? The sea animals go in the sea. The birds go in the sky. The plants go where they can live, where they can thrive. The shrubs go here. You know, a mountain goat goes in the mountains. This kind of tree goes in this kind of environment. He's putting things where they belong. Uh, I came up with this illustration as Eric was doing announcements, so if it doesn't work, I'm just going to stop in the middle of it. But it's kind of like doing a puzzle, right? This is good. I'm just making it up as we go. Okay, you start off with a puzzle is chaos, right? I hate, I'm sorry, Penny, I really don't like puzzles, but you guys should, I love that you guys love puzzles. But what do you have to do when, when, you, when you do a puzzle, right? All the puzzle makers know this. What do you start with? Edges, right? You have to create the structure for the puzzle. And then, you, what do you do? You, you fill it in, right? That, that kind of worked, right? And then after you do all this, you have something that, you know, has a purpose. It looks like something. It becomes a picture, a dog, or a rainbow, or whatever, okay? Now, I don't want to lessen the impact of this passage with a bad analogy, but the point is, right, that this is a picture of a God who is making the world into a livable, ordered place. He is creating structure, and then he's filling it perfectly, uh, each according to their kind, right, where things are supposed to go. Let's talk about one final example. There's a very clear, very significant emphasis on the word land in this passage. We lose a little bit of this emphasis in our English translations, but in Genesis 1-1, the phrase heavens and the earth actually literally translated would be the sky and the land. Genesis 1-2 tells us not just that the earth was formless and void, but that the land was wild and waste. And so here, the biblical author is not alluding to the planet earth the way we think about this. We, we, we read the earth was formless and void, and we think about planet earth. We think about a globe, right? And, and we're not wrong to think that way, but Israel had no context for that idea. He's simply talking about the land, the place where they lived. And in the context of the larger story of the Pentateuch, this is not an accident. When you think about this whole story of God's promise in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, this, this journey of bringing people into blessing, into promise, into thriving and fruitfulness in what? A land, right? We see that there are very clear parallels between the land in Genesis 1 and 2 and the land of blessing in Canaan what it looks like, what it is, what people will experience when we get there. Now, not only that, the author of Genesis 1 and 2 is making specific allusions to the temple, to the tabernacle, to these places where God and his people would dwell together, to the place where heaven and earth would meet and be one. Now, all this to say that this is the driving force of Genesis 1 and 2, not how God makes creation, but what God is making creation for, what he's making it into. He is taking a chaotic, disordered state, shaping it, forming it, speaking it into it, bending it to his will so that man and woman could be in relationship, so that we could rest with God on day seven. Now, there's obviously a lot more we could learn about Genesis 1. There's, there's plenty more details. 
But these three examples just kind of give us an idea, a picture of the way Moses, inspired by God, is doing more than just explaining how things came into existence. He's showing us how the world became a place where we could live and thrive. And so given that, here's, here's the big question. Here's what we have to ask. What is the scope of this passage? How does it, can it, speak into our conversations about science? What does Genesis 1 have to say about those three different viewpoints? About, you know, the length of each day, about the meaning of the word yom, about the age of the earth, about the possibility of evolution. And before we answer all these questions, we have to remember that, that these are simply not the questions the Bible wants to answer. You've probably heard someone say at some point, right, like the Bible isn't a science textbook, and that's true. But there's even more to it than that. That the Bible is a book that simply isn't addressing our scientific questions. And we're always going to be a little bit at odds with the text if we're looking for material origins in a story about functional origins. If we're asking it to address ideas and categories that they simply weren't thinking about. Uh, John Walton, who's this amazing Old Testament scholar, gives what I think is the best analogy for this idea. He says, imagine that you are going to a play. You're excited to see a play, and, and you know, you're looking forward to it. You've never seen it before. But you're on your way to the theater, and you hit some traffic. So you end up being about 45 minutes late. So you sit down, and you wait for intermission, and then you, you, you turn to the person next to you, and you ask them, how did the play begin? This person looks at you, and he says, well, the script was written in the 1930s, and then it was adapted. And you say, no, 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 no. That's not what I want to know. I'm not interested in the script. And he says, well, why not? You can't start a play without a script. Then a lady on the other side of you jumps into the conversation. She says, oh, I think I can help you with that question. Uh, the stage was built uh, a few years ago, and then they started putting together the sets, and they used this kind of wood. And you're like, I'm not, I don't care about the set of the play. And she says, well, you can't have a play without a set. Another person now is like, oh, okay, I understand what you're asking. The cast was chosen by this casting director. They looked for this kind of person, you know, and, and, and you're like, no, 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 that's not what I want to know. And so finally, in your frustration, you say, okay, what has happened since the curtain opened, right? That's what I want to know. And, and again, think about this. All these questions are valid, okay? Each of these ways of thinking does have to do with how this play began. So how you answer that question isn't a matter of what's true or not true. It's simply a matter of what your perspective is, what information is important to you. And so again, we are naturally based on our world, our intellectual context, our upbringing, to want to know about material origins, right? Like we want to know, how was the stage built? That's, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But we have to recognize that ancient people, the questions were very different. Okay, they're looking at the world around them. They're not thinking about the, you know, the planet and the stars, all this stuff. They just want to know, how did this world that we can see is so chaotic, this natural world that seems to be kind of at odds with us, how did it become a place where we could live and, and thrive? 
You know, how did, who was responsible for this world where we could grow crops and where it rained at the right times and those crops would grow? And, and, and how do we, you know, how do we do all these things and how do all those things happen? And there's all these different answers in the ancient world, these different deities and all these pagan gods and all these different ways and these battles between darkness and light and all these different stories. And Genesis is speaking into that world and simply saying it was God. This God, the God of Israel, your God, Yahweh, He's the one who did this. And it's not in appeasing these pagan gods. It's not in offering sacrifices to them. It's just in devotion and and trust and relationship with your God that you find this order. And they're just simply not interested in how this happened. They're not wondering how the stage was made. And so the biblical authors, we have to realize, they're not lying to us. They're not withholding information from us. And they're not wrong or unsophisticated in presenting creation this way. They're simply speaking into the story context of their world. So again, what does this mean? How should we think about creation and science within this limited scope? Well, two things. First, we need to have a view of biblical creation that focuses on function. When we say, when we think about What is biblical creation about? What did God do in Genesis 1? How should I reflect on and come to God and understand him in relation to this story? We have to emphasize function over materials. And what's really interesting and cool is that there is a whole growing movement among biblical scholars who are doing just this, who are creating constructs based on a more functional origin story for creation. I mentioned at the beginning of the message that I haven't shared my personal viewpoint yet, so if you stayed awake, that's almost all of you. Wake up, Pastor Eric. Come on. It's time to go. But here it is. This is something called historical creation. Now, scholars call it this because it's actually what Christians believed primarily throughout most of history. Uh, Our views have only really changed in the last couple hundred years as we began to think more in material origin ways. But I won't go into all the details, but I want to explain this basic idea. Again, not to convince you that this is right, but to show you options in the way we think about this story. Okay, so this view is based on the meaning of the word beginning in Genesis 1.1. In Hebrew, this word is reshit. And the important detail here is reshit doesn't necessarily have to refer to a fixed point in time. It doesn't have to mean at this one moment, God started creating the heavens and the earth. Instead, it can refer to an indefinitely long period of time. And so there's a sense in which many scholars are now reading this opening phrase as, in the beginning, during this beginning time, could be millions or billions of years, God created uh, everything. So Genesis 1, then, is actually telling us how God created the universe, God created everything, heaven and earth, over this indefinite period of time. This allows for billions of years of creation. But the rest of creation then begins to turn its focus to this, this main focus, right? The land, right? The, the land was wild and waste. And so we, we turn now, we zoom in from all of creation, and we turn away from material function into, or material origins into functional. Okay, so Genesis 1, 2, and the rest of chapter 1 is God ordering the land for habitation and thriving. 
And this can take place in six literal days because he's simply restructuring and reordering the garden. This is him kind of taking Eden and making it a place of blessing. And so this view recognizes that God does create materially. This concept of creation ex nihilo, which we talked about three weeks ago, it's important, right? We want a God who, who brings everything out of nothing, who has that kind of power and authority, but it also places the emphasis of this story on this origin, order, or this ordering process. Now, there's way more to talk about here. Uh, I'm skipping over a lot of the details of historical creationism. Um, all jokes aside, if you have questions, you can come talk to me. But I just find this appealing because ultimately it places function at the head of this story. It fits within the larger story uh, of the Bible. Now, here's the second implication of this question of scope. Okay, not only do we have to focus on function, but the reality is that we can allow science to speak into these questions of material creation. Right? Be because the Bible is primarily concerned with functional creation, we can ask questions about material creation from the world around us. Uh, one of my favorite concepts that I've come across in studying this material is the idea of two books, that God has given us two books to reveal himself. This is from the Belgic Confession of Faith. We know God by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe. Since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God. Second, God makes himself known to us more clearly by his holy and divine word, as much as we need in this life for God's glory and for our salvation. Okay, so one book is obviously God reveals himself through his word, uh, through scripture. But, but the second book is, is the world around us, and this is a biblical idea. Right? The Psalms tell us that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Romans 1.20 says that God's invisible qualities, his power and his nature have been clearly seen from what has been made. We can learn about who God is. We can learn about what God does as we look at the world around us. And so again, since the Bible is largely focused on functional creation, we at times need to turn to this second book to understand material creation. So let's come back to these three different viewpoints we have. Young Earth creationism, Old Earth creationism, and theistic evolution. Now, I know this is going to sound like a cop-out, and you're going to be all really disappointed, but if I'm being totally honest, I think any of these options are possible. Because ultimately, the Bible leaves so much space for science to speak and for us to kind of make distinctions based on what we learn from science. Now, just personally, this is just me, I think this is a bit of a challenge for proponents of young earth creationism. Okay, because this viewpoint is largely based on the idea that the Bible is speaking into material creation, that, that we need to take cues from the Bible on specifically what's happening materially in creation. And this, at times, has, been, uh, has caused proponents of this to look to kind of more alternative, sometimes even sketchy science. Uh, and so just for me, I find some of the conclusions to be a little unsatisfying intellectually. But... Before you get mad at me, uh, at the same time, I have to acknowledge that I'm not a scientist. I, I, I'm really not. I'm as far from a scientist as you can get. And there are people who are much smarter than me who spend all of their time studying this and studying the science, and they think the earth is young. 
At the same time, we know that the consensus of science changes over time. What we think now is different from what we thought like four years ago, much less 50 years ago or 100 years ago. So what we understand about the world can change. So as much as I disagree with this viewpoint, Scripture doesn't definitively tell me that it's wrong. And, and so I can throw up my hands and say, well, well, maybe. In a different sense, I have questions and concerns about theistic evolution. I worry a little bit about some of the implications of man kind of originating from this naturalistic process. It, it doesn't fully seem to jive with what I see in Scripture in the creation of man and woman. But I also understand there's a lot of interesting science that leads faithful Christians towards this viewpoint. These are people who believe in the truth of Scripture. They believe in the image of God. They believe in the gospel and the story of salvation. And so again, while I don't hold to this view, I can throw up my hands and say, maybe. I think a lot of the old earth creation viewpoints are interesting. Uh, up until a few years ago, I, I just kind of loosely held to the day-age view. It was kind of my default setting. And so a lot of those I think are possible and interesting, but they all have questions. And even this kind of favorite viewpoint I have, historic creationism, is still very new for me. I'm still learning about it, and, and I do have questions about it. It doesn't all completely make sense to me. So here's the point, and this is where I want to end things this morning. I want to come back to kind of that question I started the message with. Like, what would I say to Jason King? What would I say to a non-believing friend about this issue? Or even better, what would I tell Kaya and Grayson? Right? Like, someday they're going to come from home from school and they're going to ask me, right? Like, hey, Dad, what do you think about all this? We learned about evolution and all this science stuff and monkeys and carbon dating and fossil records. You know, what does the Bible say? And, and as I think about this, I, I, what I want to tell them is, first of all, I'll tell them, hey, here's, here's what I believe. Maybe I'll explain historical creationism. Maybe I'll be back on the day-age view. Maybe I'll be a theistic evolutionist by then. I, I don't know which one of those I'm going to explain to them, but what's important to me what I'm convicted about is that I want to tell them this. I'm not sure. I really don't know. But I'm thankful that God is much, much bigger than this question. That God doesn't need to be right about creation versus evolution. That me trusting God doesn't depend on some proof about the age of the universe. I want to tell them that what I believe Scripture reveals is a God who is doing more than just making stuff. He is working and moving to create order and blessing in the world around them and in their lives every single day. And at the end of the day, there's a lot of ways he could do that because he's God. Right? He's God. He's not bound by our understanding. The way God created probably is something that none of us have even thought of, that we don't understand. And so all I care about, all I want to believe is that he did it. He did that. He brought that kind of order into our world, even if I never understand how. And what's important to me for them is that they learn to believe that this is who God is. And this is the kind of God and faith that I would want to share with a non-believer. And I would want to move outside of these, these details and these arguments and these debates and just say, hey, listen, this is, this is what I believe about God. 
This is who I think he is, and this is what I think can be meaningful in your life beyond all those questions. And so, listen, I hope that's helpful. I'm sure there are a lot of questions that you have. But I hope at the end of the day where we walk away from kind of this section uh, of the text is with a deeper conviction about what really matters in this story and what God wants us to know about himself. And I really do hope that you now have a greater willingness, a greater desire to explore truth in both books, to, to look to discover who God is in his word and in the world around us. Uh, because he's there and he wants to reveal himself to you. Uh, Let's pray together.